Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We have a fun episode for you guys today. What have you got for us? So we are going to do a multi-part series, Chris, on the origin of the railroad. Which it turns out is absolutely super interesting. It is fascinating. It is awesome. So there is a ton of history to go with this. And our first part here is going to be how it actually originated. Where did railroad, the iron road. The iron road, which is awesome. An I love awesome that they call, term. Back then they just called it the another road. It was just a right. road. They didn't, ha they didn't have like the rail line or any of that other stuff. The terminology that we use today wasn't used. It was, it was just the iron road, which right. I love. So we're going to get right into it. But before we do, let's talk about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. If you're struggling to find a maybe last minute gift, wait, no, we can't say that because it's after Christmas. It is super last minute. Wow, that's <laughs> maybe a belated Christmas gift. Happy New Year. <laughs> a happy New Year gift. Yeah, yes. There you go. Well, Petrol Box subscription is a great idea. Each month, they carefully select tool and items, including tools. Detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, sweatshirts. Did you get your hoodie, Chris? Yeah, Jess took it. All right. She, <laughs> she steals everything out of my petrol box. Every week. Yeah, the hoodie was really cool. Uh, they get the latest and greatest in the industry. It's a curated selection, and they deliver it right there to your doorstep. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The petrol box basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the petrol box premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. So be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com. And if you use the code OVERCREST at checkout, that'll get you $6 off your first month. All right, so it says here in the notes, Chris, make sure you understand this as I explain it, and I didn't look into it at all. All right, so, so we'll be getting to that in a minute. But as with all of our history stories, we got to start at the very beginning. And that beginning is June 9th, 1781. That is the day that George Stevenson was born in Wylam, North Umbreton, England. So all of this, of course, starts over in Europe. Now, George was the son of a mechanic who operated a Newcomen engine. As with many things... Around this period of time, late 1700s, early 1800s, the, the bastion of invention really was... Well, it's the Industrial Revolution. It was England. And right? it was and right a lot there. of... Uh, you think of the Industrial Revolution as being like an American thing. It was generally wasn't. It was kind of Correct. a European... Because that, think, this is 1781. How American-centric are you, Chris? I'm very American-centric. <laughs> I love America. It's great. But this is shortly after the Revolutionary exactly, War. Exactly, yeah. This, America wasn't exactly kicking off at this point in time. Exactly. It wasn't so. until the early 20th century late 19th century that America really started to start sprinting. So around this time, everything was happening in England. All the inventions, the the uh, the loom, all this, not the loom, the, the spinning thing. That, <laughs> ah, good grief, what's it called? I can't think of it. Are you, are you talking about like actual cotton mills? No, not, not the cotton gin. That's what I was going to say right away. But just the spinning loom that was run on steam, uh -huh. that, that was the kind of the kickoff for the Industrial Revolution there was... England. A lot of the stuff was England. Right. Yeah, so it, London was, as we'll get to, a big textile provider. And right. So that's where a lot of their commerce came from. But back to our young boy, George. He was actually the son of a mechanic who operated a Newcomen engine that was used to pump out a coal of the mines in Newcastle. Now, the Newcomen engine, or atmospheric engine, was actually invented by Thomas Newcomen, hence the name, in 1712. Isn't now, every engine an atmospheric engine, technically? 
Um, let me by, tell you by why this one is atmospheric. It uses the pressure of the atmosphere rather than the pressure of steam itself. So rather than using steam as a pressure to drive a piston, right? That's how a steam engine works. Right. You heat up water, it becomes steam at high pressure, and then yep. pump it into a piston or cylinder, Release and that pressure, drives the piston, right? right? That's not how this worked. This used atmospheric, or an atmospheric engine used hot steam, which was released into a cylinder, that was already open. Then it condensed the air and cooled the steam, which created a vacuum and sucked the piston back up. So it's basically the pressure of the atmosphere pressing on the back of the piston to uh -huh. create the power. So this is extremely low power. <laughs> it is a terrible design. And it's extremely low RPM, I imagine. Yes, it was the first device to ever harness the power of steam, but just absolutely terribly and not very efficient. But if you hadn't thought of how we know a steam engine works today, this might be like, oh, well, we can just do this. Right. I'm sure if someone kept like a, a kettle over a fire and it was high pressure, it was, it was like sealed up. And as soon as they went to open it again, there was such a vacuum there yeah, that yeah, they couldn't yeah. even open it. I, that's how I'm imagining like, wait a minute. This guy was making we can tea. We can make this into something that actually creates power. Sure. So it was, as I said, the first device to ever harness the power steam. So it was basically the first steam engine. So this is what George's dad operated at a mine pulling coal from deep beneath the earth. Do you know what they called coal mines? What? Collieries. Collieries. Yes, you'll see that later in the story. I thought story. you were going to say something like death tunnels or something Well, like that. yes, that too. <laughs> but there was also terrible poverty during the time, as you're going to expand on. Yeah. So it's like you do that or you die. Yep. Um, so these machines, these Newcomen machines, were stationary, and they simply pulled out loads of coal to the surface. Like on a conveyor belt, basically? They just had carts a... with big cables. Oh, so they just pulled them up they a, just a little them. tiny little rail. I don't even know if there was rail at that time. I think it was just carts on wheels. They were, there going was up rail the shaft. at that time. There, there was, was rail. There was rail back in the you know 1500s. I 1400s. suppose for they all these rail. mines, yeah, not even mines, but even the um, in the Middle East, they use them to move rock around stuff like that. It was a very common form, but it okay. wasn't it wasn't any kind of automated transportation. It was pulled by horses or pushed by men, right? In in the early days, yeah. So. We talk about these coal mines, and one thing you need to realize is that this was right at the height of the Industrial Revolution, and the demand for coal was, of course, soaring. Right. This is, you have to, to understand how how this worked and what was going on at the time, you have to understand how poor and in poor health everybody was in London at this time. During the 1700s, more than more people died in London than were baptized every year. So basically, lot, more people were got dying than were being born. Correct. Um, it was the only steady flow of the only steady flow of migrants coming into uh, into the cities was from the rural areas, and that's the only way that London's population didn't decline. So yep. more people are dying in the city than beer are born, but they happen to have all these people moving in, so that just kept it kind of right. at a level, right? Because it, the rural there was no nothing going out in the rural areas. The farmers were dying. There was just I, massive in hindsight, property. wouldn't you much rather be? a farmer able to like sustain for yourself out in the middle of the farmland than in the city? I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that these people must've been dying out in the farmlands too. No one's buying their product. You know, this isn't, know. Look, this isn't America. Okay. There's not this right. huge swath of land, this huge True. swath of fertile land. Okay. You're thinking of, I wonder if it's still like serfdom at this point where you're basically like, no, there's a parliament. There's okay. a parliament at this time, but the, I mean, there's but probably you probably don't own your own of, land out there to farm. Um, well, there are landlords, right? At the That's time what I mean. There. So yeah. you're not farming for yourself. And we're not talking about landlords like this guy owns your apartment. <laughs> we're talking about this guy owns a hundred acres and has a giant brick castle on it. That is a landlord. Right. So when you're farming, you're basically farming for this guy. So you're not you really be. doing well for yourself. You could be. 
That makes be. a lot of sense. Um, I'm going to read kind of a, this is a, an article from a newspaper at the time. Okay. One of the great forces of putrid defooters in this metropolis is the little attention paid to the internment of the poor. In some burial grounds near the center of the city, the graves or pits for the reception of the lower fort of people are made to sufficiently wide to contain. These people are so poor that their typography, they use F for S because they can't even afford an I, S. So I read this ahead of time and I was so confused until I realized these were S's. All the F's are S's because they just couldn't afford to make I, an I, S. No, That's I, how poor they are. I think, okay. No, maybe. they actually, a lot of them were like this. Like a lot of old Bibles and stuff, the F is an S. I don't understand that, but that's, I that's think just the way it is. I don't know. Yeah, are there S? We should have some sort of typography expert in here, too. Yeah, yeah. They're made sufficiently wide to contain four, five, or six wooden coffins abreast, and that is deep enough to hold twice as many in depth. These pits, after each burial, are covered with a few loose boards and a little mold to keep the coffins from common view. They are never covered up till the whole complement of corpses has been interred. (laughs) When this is done... Okay, hold on, hold on. So let's say I die. Right, and we're poor. Yeah, and so my wife brings me to the. There's no funeral. No, they come. A cart comes and picks your oh, body. Oh, that's even worse. Yeah. Okay, so I get carted away. That's how and the my black wife wants to come, too. like visit my grave, but it's just a pit that's still open. Because sorry, ma'am, we have to wait for the rest of the people to die right. until this is full, until yeah. we can cover it up. Imagine the smell. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, when this is done, a second grave is open upon the frame the same plan close <laughs> to the first, leaving the sides of the former coffins still exposed. By which means the wholesale receptacles of the dead become t- become so offensive as frequently to oblige the minthers and others upon funeral duty to stand at considerable distance to avoid the horrid stench mm-hmm. arriving from or uh, arising from them. Barely to mention the existence of a nuisance of this kind is sufficient to shock every man of reflection and humanity, and the testimonies of numerous writers confirm the infallibility of such a practice, which may, in a city like this, produce the most fatal consequences. So living conditions in many towns were unimaginable. Many families were forced to live in single rooms, in ranshackle tenements, or in damp cellars with no sanitation and no fresh air. Drinking water was often contaminated by raw sewage, and garbage was often left rotting in the street. Yeah, now, we talked no... about garbage. Right. Garbage men. There's no garbage men. Exactly. Uh, problems with disposal of the dead often added to the stench and decay. Many London graveyards became full to capacity, and coffins were sometimes left partially uncovered in the portholes <laughs> close to local houses and businesses. Let me ask you this, Chris. Why was cremation not a bigger thing at this time? Why didn't they just burn all the dead bodies? I Was it... I don't know. I think there's something about... The belief system at the time. It must have been just you know what I mean. Was maybe it was considered sacrilege to do it. I'm right. not sure. Um, the death rate in most towns remained high. In London, perhaps one in five children died before their second wow. birthday. In certain districts, the infant mortality rate reached seventy five percent of all births whenever epidemics struck. Oh, I mean, everybody's like, oh my god, coronavirus. I mean, imagine this. Can you imagine seventy five percent of all babies are dying? Wow. Um, So what do you do to get yourself out of these situations where you're going to have to, uh, you don't want to be poor. You want money. You don't want to live or in a cellar with no air. Or you just want to live. Or you just want to live. Right? You want to be able to You need afford- to eat to live. You need to eat. You don't want to live in a cellar next to a bunch of dead bodies. Yeah. You work. Right. And you have to work. And you could, example, work in a coal mine. Right. Because so, there's not a lot of jobs out there to choose from. There, the job market not. probably was not as ripe as today. Right. Well, from 1700 to 1750, today. coal production increased by 50%, nearly another 100%. By 1800, during the later years of the first revolution, as steam power really took a firm grip, this rate increased from five to 500 percent. Wow! By 1850, 
The rising demand for coal came from many sources. As the population increased, so did the domestic market, and people in town needed coal because they weren't near forests near forest for uh, wood and charcoal, right. which is what you would burn before coal, which is really an inefficient way to power any of this stuff. More and more industries used coal as it became cheaper and thus more cost-effective than other fuels, from iron production to simply bakeries. Shortly after 1800, towns began to be lit by coal-powered gas lamps. Oh, wow. And 52 towns had networks of these by 1823. That's interesting, because you think of coal as just running, like, big steam engines or something. Everything. But Everything. a bakery. They Everything. Need, yeah, you can't just flip on your gas uh, stove like you would today. Yeah, Or electric everything. stove. It's you ran, you ran it on coal. Yeah, you ran it on coal, and coal is much more efficient than burning wood. Burn, wood it burns, burns fast. Hotter. It burns hot, it burns fast, and it's gone. Right. Coal will obviously... You know, you can go out and cook your cheeseburger an hour later, two hours later, because the coals are still hot. Right. It doesn't really work that way with wood. Um, coal was hideously dangerous to mine. As the demand for coal increased, miners were forced to go deeper underground to find new coal. Deep tunnels were dug underground where the conditions were dark, hot, and cramped. They hewed the coal. So that's called hewed. They hewed it, like hewed, it, hewed the coal from the ground in okay. narrow candlelit passages on their knees in their underwear. Okay. Oh. So these are very small. This isn't like the tunnels where you see in like Western <laughs> movies where they're like mining for gold, where there's timbers and you're just like, yeah. you're walking in with your little headlamp on. Yeah. You have a candle and you're on your hands and knees with your little tink, 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 mining the coal and uh, pulling out. So the hewers and the putters uh, who helped the hewers, okay. uh, they're pushing the carts and doing stuff like that, died most often, usually from methane explosions oh. or cave-ins. Reverend John Hodgson was a priest of the parish of Jarrow with Hethworth, where felling colliery was located. There you go, colliery. He wrote an account of this type of explosion called, it was called a fire damp explosion, is what these explosions were called. Okay. I couldn't really find out what that meant. I thought fire maybe damp. fire damp explosion. He said, the whole mine is instantly illuminated with the most brilliant lighting. The explosion drives before it a roaring whirlwind of flaming air, which tears up everything in its progress, scorching some of the miners to a cinder, burying unders under enormous heaps of ruins shaken from the roof, and thundering to the shafts, wastes its volcanic fury in a discharge of thick clouds of coal dust, stones, timber, and not unfrequently, limbs of men and horses. Wow. Here's Hodgson's description of an explosion at Felling on 25th of May, 1812, in which 92 men died. Felling Colliery had two deep shafts called John Pitt. They were called pits. Okay. So that's what you're, it wasn't a coal mine, it was a coal pit. Which, so they, yeah, seems more appropriate. Yeah, pits where you go to die. And I, I hate to think why they called it John. Was that the first guy John to die pit? down there, and then William was the other guy? And yeah, well, John died, and now let's build another one. About <laughs> half past 11 o'clock in the morning on the 25th of May, 1812, the neighboring villages were alarmed by a tremendous explosion in this colliery. The subterraneous fire broke forth with two heavy discharges from the John Pit, which were almost instantaneously followed by one from the William Pit. Huh. A slight trembling, as from an earthquake, was felt for a half a mile around the workings, and the noise of the explosion, though dull, was heard three or four miles in the distance. Now, this isn't C4. This isn't right. dynamite. No. This is just a methane explosion deep wow. underground, and they're hearing it from three or four miles away. In the village of Hilworth, the dust from the explosion caused a darkness like that of early twilight and covered the road so thickly that the footsteps of passengers were strongly imprinted on it. As soon as the explosion was heard, the wives and children of the workmen ran to the working pit. Wildness and terror were pictured in every face. Ugh. The crowd from all sides soon collected to the number of several hundreds, some crying out for a husband, others for a parent or a son, and all deeply affected with a mixture of horror, anxiety, and grief. 
121 people were in the mine when the explosion happened. 92 died. Wow. So this is dangerous shit, okay? The people died regularly. Yeah. This is a horrible job. And you're doing this horrible job because it's the only way that you can survive. And this is the... This is the fuel of the Industrial Revolution, okay? Right. Off the backs of these men who died is how we built the Industrial Revolution. And I just want everybody to kind of think about that right now, the sacrifices that were made by people that were living in, living in such squalorous positions that they were willing to... Basically... Most likely they're going to die so yeah. that their families could not live next to rotting bodies in the city. Wow. And they could fuel the the looms and the bakeries and the and the, as we go on with the the trains and everything else. This is what was going on. Yeah, they this is the foundation context. of it. This is the foundation of it. This is what is the shoulders and the foundation of what we're going to talk about is these men Built in these this. coal mines. Yeah, and you know, back to our story of George, this guy we're following, his father who operated these big steam engines pulling the coal out. He obviously had a cush job compared to the guys, the hewers who were down in there. George then did follow in his father's footstep, operating his own Newcomen engine at the age of 19, which to me actually seemed a little bit young or Seems old. a little bit old. I was right. going to say old, yeah. For that to be going to work. But maybe at 19, he finally came up to that position right. of operating the Newcomen engine. And in 1813, George visited a neighboring colliery, which he had heard of their new steam boiler on wheels okay so we had steam engines but now we have something on wheels that is actually pulling these out so while the machine was interesting in that it traveled down into the mine and hauled cars back up stevenson recognized that it wasn't very practical and suffered frequent breakdowns so keep in mind at this point these machines were running on timber runners you really couldn't even call them rails at this point and in order to get some semblance of traction in like a damp dark mine shaft you know just Iron wheels on wood timbers yeah, is not going to get you great. much traction. So there was a third central track that was notched, and that had a cogged wheel that would ride on that notched central rail right. or timber. The problem was that this added a ton of complexity to the whole thing. So after conferring with the owner of the coal mine, he basically said, look, I can do better than this. Right. And he's a nobody. He's like, I know how to operate these machines. But as with so many of these young guys we talk about in our stories, he obviously had some sort of just he, innate ingenuity. He's sitting in his in his house and his window and he's looking out his window and there's a bunch of dead bodies there. And he's like, <laughs> I got to get out of here. I need to figure out a and way he, to elevate myself. Somehow he's thinking, look, I can, I'm good with machinery and I can do better. So he built the Blucher. The Blucher was a steam mean? engine. I don't know. I couldn't find it. It's not the butcher. Sometimes it's coined or it's called the butcher mistakenly. It's okay. the B-L-U-C-H-E-R. Well, if it was a butcher, it would have had to have driven over a bunch of people's legs well, or something I'm, like it that. it probably did at some point, <laughs> sure. let's be honest. But sure. the, the blucher or the blucher. You ever see any of these machines? Oh, they're just wild looking. They're not what you necessarily they are, picture. They're not OSHA approved. No, was, certainly. That's what I was going to get at. I mean, there's no little th picture of like a finger getting dismembered and a guy oh, like, oh, right, right. There's yeah, none no, of that. None there's, of the warning this, labels. These things, <laughs> I would not be surprised if it was called the butcher because these things would just dismember you very yeah. easily. And a lot of them, 
looked more like an old-fashioned still on wheels than right. anything else. Yep. It's not like you have a big enclosed iron boiler no. like you think of All the mechanicals the are, it's almost like the, the tube amps I have where the cover is just off and it's, it all, helped, just, it's, just, it's all just all of it right, right there. There it is. There. Easy to maintain. I mean, you can get right at everything. Yeah. So the Blitzer was a steam engine that was able to draw eight loaded wagons carrying 30 tons of coal at four miles per hour. And that's pretty impressive compared to just hauling it up on a winch. Right. Now, my assumption is that it was a true steam engine. That is, it is using pressure of steam rather than the aforementioned atmosphere engine. But I couldn't for the life of me find any information on the Blitzer itself and how it's constructed. Okay. But this thing was obviously more powerful. Regardless, George wasn't satisfied, satisfied with his first creation and soon sought to improve his locomotive's power and introduced the steam blast. That sounds like a modern shower creation. <laughs> <laughs> it's an awesome name. Now by Kohler, the steam blast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Besides having an awesome name, this technology was actually revolutionary to the steam engine. And I'll get to the purpose of the device later when we, in episode two, Chris, we're okay. going to delve deep into the technology okay. of how these steam engines work. But as a short letter cursory overview, think of how you're going to build a fire under a boiler, right? Yep. And so that's how you're creating the heat. But in order to get a good fire, what do you need? You need to either keep fanning it. You need, yeah, you need something oxygen. to pull air through it. And that's how you get a very, yes, you need a draft to get a very hot fire going. So what this steam blast was. Have you ever been next to the campfire with, you know, those little things that you use to inflate the air mattresses? Oh, yeah. You bring one of those, a battery power one out to the campfire. Just a little air compressor yeah. type blower. You can just. Oh, I'm sure you can awesome. get that thing going. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's how you get a hot fire and get more power out of steam. How did he. So what he his, does. How did he inflate his air mattress? Yeah. Then? His air mattress <laughs> was the steam blast. So basically you think of steam going into a piston or a cylinder driving the piston. Yep. And afterward, you would assume that the steam is just kind of released to the atmosphere. Right. That's exhaust steam. Rather, did he use it to pull? He used the exhaust steam to go up through the chimney and create a venturi effect. Yeah, okay, that's so what he's I was pulling air up through the chimney of the boiler, and that's drawing air into what's it called underneath the? That's the coal. What is? Do we know what that's called? I do, but not off the top of my head. <laughs> I don't know the diagram in front of me. Next episode. Yes, exactly. So that was basically critical in making a steam engine powerful enough to be truly practical. And in 1821, George heard of a project for a railroad employing just draft horses rather than any sort of locomotive. Keep in mind, these things are still so, they're not even really known of a steam engine as a carrying device. All we knew before is we had these things used at mines that weren't very practical. And we had, as you mentioned before, railroads, but they were usually just pulled by either horses or men. And so, none, of this was, none of this was done because men were dying. They were doing it because the men weren't fast enough. Right. It was basically, they weren't doing it was commerce, right? Yeah. If you can move was, X amount of whatever it is faster this way, let's invest in that. Right. And if it would have been faster to have men die in the mines, they would have done it. Probably. Yeah. At this period of time. In At society. this period. Yeah. So George heard about this railroad and it was going to employ draft horses to be built from Stockton to Darlington to facilitate the exploit exploitation, not exploration and not explosion, the exploitation of a rich veil of coal. There we go again. We know there's more coal over here, so we're going to build some sort of a rail line to get the coal to where we need it. Right. And at Darrington, he met with the promoter, Edward Pease, and told him of his new design of steam engines. So this Pease guy was so impressed that he commissioned George to build a steam locomotive for the line rather than using horses as he was planning on doing. And on September 27th, 1825, railroad transportation was actually born. 
the first public passenger train pulled by Stevenson's Active, which was later renamed Locomotion. Sounds like a like a cologne. Active. 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 By, by, active. by Stevenson. <laughs> yes, it is. So there's active. Like a, there's like a conductor like, like putting <laughs> yeah, it on. He's steaming, yeah, obviously. Yeah. So he's, he's hot. Oh, he's hot. active. Yeah. It's hot. So he called it active and then later renamed it Locomotion, which I think is where Locomotion motive comes from is it crazy motion is that what it is it's loco, loco? i loco well that's like spanish latin. but it, i'm sure latin it also comes from something it's, like really so really crazy crazy fast. yeah crazy motion crazy motion so this ran from darrington to stockton carrying 450 people at 15 miles an hour and we really can't comprehend just how revolutionary this must have been at the you time can't. you can't because just imagine imagine being a guy who lives out in in a rural area? Mm-hmm. What is how is everything done before rail and steam and everything? Everything is done how? <laughs> Blood, sweat, and tears. Blood, sweat, and tears for two hundred and fifty thousand years, or however many thousands of years, animals, not even humanity, has existed. Everything has been done with muscle. Right, it's I been, suppose. It's because been muscle. you could say, "Oh, well, it's used horses on a farm." That's still just muscle. It's been it's been leveraged. Right, sure. animals and muscle has been leveraged in different ways to do different things. But it's always but at been the core, muscle. it is always your feet on the ground, yeah, pushing something. And I know you're talking about England right now, but I like to think about a cowboy who's been driving cattle up the Chisholm Trail by the thousands, or a poor farmer scraping by with the life of his family tied to the calluses of his hands. And a man in a black suit, complete with a vest and a pocket watch, <laughs> shows up at your general store saying he's bringing the railroad to your town. Now, this is the first time anyone had been exposed to anything truly mechanical. I want you to think of, like, when you see the movie Tombstone, right? All it is is, like, guys with hats and guns and wagons, (laughs) right? There's nothing nothing like any of this. And uh, in the movies, there's rails around. But remember, imagine being the first guy to see it come to your town. Then they build a rail station. And then there's a few jobs there. And then they've got to have a a telegraph machine to to start communicating with the outside world with schedules. And then the train shows up. Eventually, this monolithic machine shows up for the first time. A massive black metal machine, a living, breathing machine shows up. Um, before the train, when people traveled, you likely never saw them again. It was just too hard to come back. Because these journeys, you played Oregon Trail. Everybody <laughs> died of Everyone dysentery. Everyone got dysentery. They all died. Or you didn't cock your wagon enough. You didn't cock your wagon, you sank. What used to take days, weeks, or months now took hours or days. This is the complete annihilation of the concept of time. It changed everything. Author Benjamin Gass was knowing that the constant changing view was what was thrilling. He said, quote, In quick succession, it presents the astonished traveler with happy scenes, sad scenes, burlesque interludes, brilliant fireworks, all visions that disappear as soon as they are seen. Victor Hugo described in 1837, the flowers by the side of the road are no longer flowers, but fleck, or rather streaks of red and white. They are no longer any points. Everything becomes a streak. This is truly when a society went from a crawl to hurtling at breakneck speed where we are today. Like entire human human civilization, right. everybody's walking around. You could only go as fast as an animal could take you. It's much as much energy as it had. I no. mean, once a horse is tired, it's tired. When a human right. is tired, I was going to say, so a machine never sleeps. This previous train we talk about, it went 15 miles an hour was top speed, right? And you could get a horse to go faster than that on a sprint, right? A horse gallop can gallop for a few hours at seven to eight miles per hour. Okay. It's kind of what a horse can gallop So this is at. more than double that gallop, and it can continue. 
So there was a there was a song that was written, and it's uh, not in the vein the distance forward. Forward, let us range. Let the great world spin forever down the ringing grooves of change. Through the shadow of the globe, we sweep into the younger day. Better 50 years of Europe than a cycle of Cathay, which was China. China wasn't doing very well back in that oh, time. Oh, interesting. So they're just saying, hey, this is the future. This is what's happening. And I can honestly say that I still feel like we as humans, we don't think of, oh my God, look at that new thing like they did. But over the course of human history, it's change happens so slowly mm-hmm. that generations had a chance to adapt to the new <laughs> things that happened. Yeah. Over the last 100 to 200 years, society has moved 10,000 years of advancement. Right. And I don't think that our brains and our that's an interesting- and our evolution has had a chance to adapt to it. Yeah. And, and we're, we are still as human beings that person that saw the train for the first time almost every day when we wake up because there's something new and we're just like, holy shit, and everything's just moving so fast. And, right. then, and then the internet came out, and the internet's parallels with the train are, yes. I mean, you can draw parallels everywhere. And it's kind of cliche, so I don't want to get into the parallels of comparing the two. Well, But it's 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 very similar, and I don't think humans have had a chance to adapt. That's an I interesting that perspective because, yeah, they've said that humans, humans as a species haven't evolved that much from basically the stone age right and so these are creatures you and i that were developed in the stone age and now all of a sudden things are progressing so quickly right i mean it's it's and i don't think human beings are meant for this type of we're nomads right at core that's where we are we're at core we're nomads we move we travel that's why you always want to get in your car exactly (laughs) but not not at that speed it changed everything almost overnight Almost overnight. And I'm going to talk a little bit later about the mania and the craze that was going on in England at the time. But everything changed fast. Yes, it did. So after George was involved with the Newcomen engine and that railway from the Darrington to Stockton, there was another railway that was basically on the precipice. The L&MR, or Liverpool and Manchester Railway, opened in 1830. Now keep in mind also that at this time, rail lines weren't built specifically to connect various cities. It's not like you said, hey, let's let's build a big line to go from A to B or, you know, for people to to travel. There had to be utility for it. Yeah, these were extreme engineering undertakings. And very expensive at their time. Yeah, so instead, rail lines were just that, single pairs of tracks joining point A to point B for specific purposes. And that wasn't necessarily transporting people. No, not at all. During the Industrial Revolution, immeasurable tons of materials were imported through Liverpool and carried to the textile mills near the Peniers, where water-driven mills, which were, of course, later converted to steam power, produced cloth, much of which was then transported back to Liverpool for export. So goods were transported between the cities either by canals or by, quote, poor quality roads. Which is basically a wagon. Yeah, it's many of these trails couldn't even be called roads at all. The turnpike between the Liverpool and Manchester was described as, quote, crooked and rough with a infamous surface. I wonder if that, we'll have to have one of our British listeners tell us if it's changed. <laughs> it's still just infamous and rough. Road accidents were so frequent, including wagons and coaches overturning, with which I can imagine was less than ideal. Well, Winston, we just traversed 30 break-backing miles, carrying our entire life savings worth of cotton, and it all tipped over and flew out of the wagon. Well, they all had spare wagon wheels. These dudes were industrious. They would have fixed it. 
They would have. They would fix it and figure it out. It's not the easiest travel. Or you waited for some other guy to come along with his crappy wagon on the (laughs) road and help you out. So a railway, or you got got robbed. True. Or you got robbed and shot and Mm. left on the side of the. Yeah, that's not ideal. I mean, there was so much violence back in this time. You know, doing some of the research for this, I was just reading old newspapers from the time. There's somebody getting shot, pillaged, murdered, thrown off buildings, drowned. Like, I mean, it was insane. There was so much violence because everybody was so desperate. True. Everybody was. Yeah, a lot of it was desperation. desperation. Yeah, it was insane. So if you had a thing full of cotton, you broke down on the side of the road. Odds are you're going to get shot, and then all your (laughs) stuff's going to get taken. There's our optimist, Chris, right there. All right, so a railway was obviously a good idea. It's proposed. So it's safe. Your stuff goes in the railway. That's true. And then it gets there. Yes. You don't have to worry about it. More times than not. More times than not. So intending to achieve cheap transport of raw materials, finished goods, and passengers between the port of Liverpool and East Lancashire. So there was support for the railway from both Liverpool and London, but Manchester was largely indifferent, and opposition actually came from the canal operators and the two local landowners, the Earl of Derby and the Earl of Sefton, over whose land the railway would, of course, cross. Now, there, there was tons of, of consternation in, in many different forms. A lot of it was, you know, you had, like, the, the markets and, you, you like, different things that were being transported in different ways. But it was also, there was a lot of danger. And people, it was the unfamiliar, right? It was this enigmatic thing that people just feared because it was just, it was new. It was different. It was a change. And I think maybe people sensed a little bit about what I was talking about, where they were just like shell-shocked at the amount of change that was happening in such a short uh, period of time. Henrik Heine wrote that railroads produced, quote, a tremendous foreboding such as we always feel when there comes an enormous unheard of event whose consequences are imponderable and incalculable. And I think that's that's a pretty good representation of how a lot of people feel about anything that comes that's new. And remember, for the vast majority of rural or outlying cities, this all happened fairly suddenly. And many historians call the period surrounding the expansion of rail, especially in England, railway fever or mania. Hmm. Think of for a moment about what the train represented. Speed and power. Not only in the destruction, uh, and the destruction not only established social norms, but anything and everything that got in its way, physically or politically. <laughs> I suppose. Formerly objects of scorn or indifference, the railways were suddenly thrust into the public eye with the success of George Stevenson's train, which we'll talk about in a while. Right. Um, most of the opposition was by nature local, consisting of persons who were not, in theory, opposed to the idea of rail transport, really. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't want it in their own territory. In other words, it's the whole not-in-my-backyard thing. Right. Uh, opponents of rail often use accidents to push back against expansions of Iron Road. While writing his f- uh, final novel, Our Mutual Friend, which is widely regarded as his most sophisticated work, Charles Dickens survived a horrible railroad accident. This accident was so terrible and prolific, it was actually covered in the newspaper at the time. The two fatal accidents on the Great Western Railway have been followed by one even more startling on the southeastern line. And from the character of the train to which the disaster occurred, the intelligence will be read with unusually painful interest. The fast tidal train, timed to leave Folkestone at 2.30 p.m. on the arrival of passengers from Boulogne, who quitted Paris on Friday morning at 7 o'clock, started, as usual, with about 110 passengers and proceeded nearly 30 miles on its journey. When at a place called Staplehurst, the accident occurred, which had been productive of such lamentable consequences. It appears that at this point the railway crosses a stream, which in winter is of formidable dimensions and of considerable depth. 
but in summer shrinks to the proportions of a rivulet. On the bridge itself, a plate had been loosened by the plate layers, and the engine running over this was thrown off the rails. Though displaced from its proper track, the locomotive adhered to the permanent way, but the train broke into two parts, and seven or eight of the carriages plunged into or through the stream, a fall of several feet. These unhappy vehicles were so crushed and shattered to pieces that they did not occupy the space of two whole carriages. Cushions and luggage were thrown out into and upon the mud in all directions, and as regards to the occupants, the sad story was only too truthfully told in the telegram received in town shortly before 4 o'clock. Quote, several killed at Staplehurst, a many more injured. Before long, 20 medical men, at least, were on the spot. There was but too much need for the services of one and all. A glance at the condition of the train and a hasty recognition of the class to which its occupants belonged showed that it was no ordinary accident which had occurred. The carriages that went down into the water were so twisted, flattened, and turned upon their sides that it was impossible to say whether the unfortunate travelers inside had been killed outright by the shock or suffocated as they lay in the water and mud. Those of the passengers who escaped injury in the first instance behaved nobly towards their fellows in distress. There was no standing irresolute on the bank. Everything that willing hands could do was done, and done at once. But in spite of every effort, ten lives had been lost beyond recall, and twenty is the lowest estimate that has been formed as to the wounded. Mr. Charles Dickens was in the train, and his escape was very remarkable. We understand that the carriage in which he was sitting, being next to the engine, was actually over the bridge, but remained suspended by the couplings with the engine. And, seeing his danger, Mr. Dickens made his escape through the window. The disaster, it is thought, would have been even greater had it not been for the unusual amount of brake power incorporated with the train. In addition to the ordinary leverage power exerted in the three guards' vans, there were patent brakes as well, of the kind known as Kremers, an American invention supposed to possess properties of peculiar value in arresting the progress of a train. Taking into account the control exercised over the engine, there were no less than seven brakes in all regulating the speed of the train. With the exception of one of the guards who received contusions and the engineer and the fireman were shaken but not otherwise hurt, the company's servants escaped. The police have felt it right to take into custody the foreman of the gang of plate layers responsible for the condition of the portion of line at which the accident occurred. It will, of course, be matter for inquiry here after whether the plate was, in fact, improperly removed and the accident thereby occasioned, whether the flag protecting the operations of the plate layers was sent back to a sufficient distance in their place so that it could be seen by the engine driver. But it would be plainly premature, as well as unjust towards the prisoner, to allude here to any of the rumors current on these points. So Charles Dickinson himself quoted and described the event as such. On Friday the 9th of June, in the present year, Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, in their manuscript dress of receiving Mr. and Mrs. Lamell at breakfast, were on the Southeastern Railway with me in a terribly destructive accident. When I had done what I could to help others, I climbed back into my carriage, nearly turned over an viaduct, and caught a slant upon the turn to extricate my worthy couple. They were much soiled, but otherwise unhurt. The same happy results attended Miss Bella Winfler on her wedding day, and Mr. Rindhood inspecting Bradley Headstone's red neckerchief as he lay asleep. I remember with devout thankfulness that I can never be much nearer parting company with my readers forever than I was then, until there shall be written against my life the two words with which I have to this day closed this book.
the end. I need a neckerchief. Yeah. I need a neckerchief. Anyway, so this is all uh, this is all true, of course, but the right. fear-mongering was incredible. And it goes without saying that these trains were incredibly dangerous. Steam engines in general were dangerous, so much so that companies took out sections of newspapers to dispel the rumors. Huh. There were less grisly reasons, reasons to feel railway incursion as well. People who owned property on land that had been designated as railway right-of-way or land rumored to even be so worried that their houses would be destroyed or at the very least rendered uninhabitable. So, I mean, it's it's they just it doesn't make any sense that your house is going to be rendered uninhabitable, but this is all so new, yeah. so fresh, that you, they had no idea what it was going to be like, so they were just scared. A Quaker who called himself Ebenezer wrote a letter to the Leeds Intelligencer on 13th of January, 1831. On the very line of this railway, I have built a comfortable house and enjoys a pleasing view of the country. Now judge, my friend, of my mortification whilst I am sitting comfortably at breakfast with my family, enjoying the purity of the summer air and the moment of my dwelling, once consecrated to peace and retirement, is filled with dense smoke and fetid gas. My homely, though cleanly, table covered with dirt and the features of my wife and family almost obscured by a polluted <laughs> atmosphere. Nothing is heard but the clanking iron, the blasphemous song, and the appalling curses of the directors of these infernal machines. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's... I kind of, I think he's being a little hyperbolic there, Chris. I don't think he could nearly see his wife across the table. (laughs) There was a ton of irresponsible financial speculation at this time as well. The Manchester Guardian published an account that in the space of one week, 89 new ventures had been advertised in three newspapers. The combined capital required for the schemes, everything was a scheme oh, yeah. back then. Did you, everything's a scheme. Oh, yeah. I'm reading all this. The railroad, Good or bad, it's a scheme. It's a scheme. I don't know where scheme, this is probably where schemes got such a bad name. Before the schemes were great. Oh, Chris, I got a scheme. Oh, let me hear it. <laughs> Let's start a podcast. Oh, that's, a, that's a great scheme. Now, if you said it's schemes, schemes are always bad now. Before right. this, maybe they're, the combined capital required for the schemes was estimated more than 84 million pounds, which is 10 billion (laughs) British pounds today. This is in the space of one week. Wow. However, over the period of one month, 357 railway schemes were advertised (laughs) in the same newspapers. Their combined worth being estimated at 332 million pounds or 42 billion British pounds today. Wow. In 1844, Peel's Bank Act was passed as an attempt to prevent banks from issuing credit past their gold reserves. So everything was on the gold standard back then. Right. You could only lend as much money or do anything. Which makes sense on its face. On its face, yes. However, the Bank Act was suspended at least three times during the mania because people just wanted it. Uh, A popular song of the time summed up the hysteria. Old men... Old men and young, the famished and the full, the rich and the poor, widow and wife and maid, master and certain, all with one intent, rushed upon the paper script, their eager eyes, flashing a fierce, unconquerable greed, their hot palms itching, all their being filled with one desire. So they just wanted it so bad because this was money, right? This is yeah. almost, like, it's almost like Bitcoin or the tulip mania or something <laughs> like that. Um, people in general hate change and will resist it and fight it with everything they have in 1870 in alcott west virginia one man set out to prove change wasn't necessary at all in the pantheon of american tales john henry lies right alongside paul bunyan so i don't know the story of john henry you're gonna 
You're down. Okay. As far as any, what kind of childhood did you have? My <laughs> as far as anyone can determine, John Henry was hired as a steel driver for the C&O Railroad, a wealthy company that was extending its line from the Chesapeake Bay to the Ohio Valley. Steel drivers, also known as a hammer man, huh. would spend their work days driving holes into rock by hitting thick steels, uh, drills, or spikes. The hammer man always had a partner, known as a shaker or a turner, who would crouch close to the hole and rotate the drill after each blow. So, wow. wham, turn, wham, turn. That's that's what you did. If you didn't have a that's steel... That's it. You, you better trust your hammer man if you're the turner. Yeah, otherwise you're going to be a flat hand. The CNO's <laughs> new line was moving along quickly until Big Bend Mountain. These are real places, okay. real things. Uh, CNO's new line, this has actually happened. Until Big Bend Mountain emerged to block its path. The mile and a quarter thick mountain was too vast to build around, so the men were told they had to drive their drills through it and through its belly. It took 1,000 men three years to finish. Wow. The work was treacherous. Visibility was awful, and the air inside the developing tunnel was thick with noxious black smoke and dust. Hundreds of men would lose their lives to Big Ben before it was over, and they buried their bodies in these makeshift graves right next to the tunnel, basically. Jeez. As the story goes, John Henry was the strongest, fastest, and most powerful man working on the rails. He used a 14-pound hammer to drill. <laughs> Have you? Okay. My that hammer is, is a like big five. hammer. My hammer is like five pounds. Yeah. He used a 14-pound hammer to drill. Some historians believe 10 to 20 feet in a 12-hour day. Wow. The best of any man on the rails. One day, a salesman came to the rail camp, bragging that his steam-powered machine could outdrill any man. And that's where John Henry's place in the pantheon of American culture begins. Hmm. John Henry looked at the machine and saw the future. He saw jobs disappearing. He stood next to his brothers of the hammer, knowing he had to beat that machine. John Henry told the supervisor he would never let the machine take his job. His friends all cheered. John Henry's wife, Pollyann, though, was not happy calling out to him, no, Johnny, no. If you compete against that machine, you'll die, she said. You'll never, you have a family, a child. If you do this, if you go out there and lay that hammer down, you'll never, we'll never smile again. John Henry lifted his son into the air. He told his wife, a man ain't nothing but a man. Tomorrow I will take my hammer and drive that steel faster than any machine. And if I have to, I'll die with that hammer in my hand. I'll die with that hammer in my hand. Wow. The day came and the drill pulled up in the tunnel next to John's and they started the race. The steam machine pounding the drill and John Henry next to it, swinging that 14-pound hammer into the drill, his shaker turning at a quarter turn with each swing. The salesman was afraid when he heard what sounded like the mountain breaking, telling the captain to stop the race. The captain ran into the tunnel to tell John the tunnel was caving in. John Henry said, don't worry, that's just my hammer sucking wind. <laughs> it was the only sound of, it was only the sound of John Henry at work, his drill shattering the stone inside the tunnel. Pollyann and the son cheered when the machine was pulled from the tunnel. It had broken down. Pollyann urged John huh. Henry to come out, but he kept working faster and faster. He dug deep into the darkness, hitting the steel so hard that his body broke and his heart burst. His last words were that of a thirsty man. Bring me a cold drink of water. Now, John Henry is a shorthand for power and strength. It's something people over the years have tried to turn into racial power movements or, been, or it's been used in union propaganda to huh. represent the power of the workers' union. It's even being used in communist propaganda. Wow. In reality, to me, it is a story of an American man fighting and dying for something he believed was important, dying to fight the change he thought would affect his family, friends, and his way of life, like so many had done before. 
If we can learn anything from the John Henry's legacy, it would be slow down. I have never heard that story. And that is amazing. And I see so many parallels between all of your concerns with the future of autonomy and driving and your freedom and basically where the automotive industry is going and John Henry there. Hopefully my heart doesn't burst. Although I love all you guys so much, I feel that (laughs) night. Okay, come on. (laughs) Uh, I think with that, it's a good time to take a break and talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk Car Care is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that's research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And so they did make a good product. I love that it's a simple, foolproof, two-step process. It's easy and gives amazing finish. Right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your next order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OBERCCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. So go check them out today, and hopefully your heart won't burst. So this, if you think about what the John Henry... This is just an American tall tale, right? Right. Um, John it's Her- like blue and th- bl- uh, blue the ox and yeah, but this is babe th- the blue ox. Thank was, you. It was uh, it's this comparison between the old and the new, right? It's right. It's all about change. Yes, and it is incoming change and and what it does to human beings, right? I just think it's just a. There's been over the course of history with with this is where some of the first blues songs that ever existed were about John Henry, oh, John really? Henry swinging his hammer, and a lot of them were um, kind of adages to fighting the man too, right? There's all oh kinds yeah, of and like, the fact that they're using this in communism and, propaganda yeah, and as well, and, and it's all about being these men were basically um, used up. Right, sure. and the, these songs are that they would sing while they're on the rail line pounding the steel. They'd wow. sing about John Henry, and this—I mean, this—this this was really, really meaningful stuff about these human beings being used up and stuff like that. And then this change comes, and then everything that all these men had died for was just going to disappear. Yeah. I mean, all this change—it like, it was scary. It was scary. It was a scary time, and everything was moving so fast. And I just thought it was a good representation of of how people at the time might have viewed the change that was coming. Yeah. And finishing up our story today, let's move back to the first railway, as it is basically called, the L&MR. So the Liverpool-Manchester Railway Company was founded on May 20th, 1824, which is actually six years before it ever got completed. So you need your company to develop a railroad first. It was formed primarily by wealthy merchants from Liverpool and Manchester. And a bunch of people looking at newspapers with itchy palms. No kidding. Apparently all the schemers. (laughs) They sponsored a bill to be drafted in Parliament, which included a map. (laughs) I think itchy palms, I think of something else like you're yeah that you know doesn't I mean? seem yeah. like you're like ready to go no it seems like, well you are but not to, not to <laughs> <laughs> so they actually pushed a bill into parliament which included a map of the railway's route so even though this was a private venture they would obviously need government approvals for all the land use right the first survey for the line was did you find out. that they took any land from landlords back then did they they, yes, I don't know the specifics of it, but I'll get to it a lot. There was a lot of um, political greasing palms and making was. friends throughout all the landowners. And that's yeah, where it, the itchy palms came from. It's, it's, uh, it gets dicey. Maybe this here. is where greasing the wheels came from. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Greasing the wheels of the train for yeah. sure. So the first survey of the line was carried out in 1822. However, the committee was unaware of exactly what land had actually been surveyed. 
You see, the surveyor subsequently declared bankruptcy and was imprisoned that <laughs> November. The committee, quote, lost confidence in his ability to plan and build the line. Well, yeah, he's... Obviously, he's, since he's in jail. So in June of 1824, none other than our guy. He's our guy. George Stevenson himself was appointed principal engineer of the project. However, as mentioned before, things weren't easy. Lords Stefton and Derby objected to the proposed route through their own lands, and Robert Halladine Broadshaw, a trustee of the Duke of Bridgewater's estate of Worsley, refused any access to land owned by the Bridgewater trustees. So, Stevenson suggested that instead, they put the railway through the Chat Moss, which is a large area of peat bog. And that's like stinky swamp. Stinky swamp. Yeah. So I can't imagine building anything there as easy. It didn't turn out to be. Yeah, I can't imagine it was. So as he proposed this, one Francis Giles, who happened to be none other than a canal engineer, which, gee, Chris, I wonder if he has any interest in opposing a railway, seeing as he's currently how goods are moved. So this Giles guy suggested that building the railway through Chatmoss was a serious error. It would have cost nearly five times more than what was estimated. This was such a serious accusation that the matter was taken to court, where George Stevenson was basically found to not have any idea what he was doing at all in building a railway. In hindsight, we know that's he's a pretty smart guy. Maybe. He's a smart guy when it came to engines and right. engine like engineering. Right, but not so much. But not like a building a massive civil project. So he's a brilliant inventor, sure, but had zero experience in heading a massive engineering project like this and basically seemed to be making it up as he went. In fact, in court, he was unable to specify the levels of the track and how he calculated the cost of major structures such as the Irwin Divide. How embarrassing. I mean, that must have been brutal. Like, okay, so where are your calculations? How did you come up with this figure? And he's like, I I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So the railway company promptly fired George and hired a couple other engineers who seemed to know a little bit more what they were doing. They in turn hired a new surveyor who, which with the help of politicians and greased palms, was able to placate both those that had interest in the canal industry who opposed the railroad, as well as the rich landowners who basically needed to allow the railway to go through their land. Suddenly, staunch opposition to the railway changed to financial support. Of course. Construction of the line started in 1826. One of the largest hurdles was where the railway did still, interestingly enough, include the four and three quarter mile crossing of Chat Moss. So George Stevenson didn't know what he was talking about, but even the engineers and the surveyors after him said, yes, we do have to go through this huge peat bog. Is there any reason they couldn't go around it? I think it it would have taken so much longer to go around it and... Keep in mind, railways like to be as straight as possible. Yeah, you can't... You can't just do a 90 degree when you hit this peat bog and then circle around it and do another 90. So it was found impossible to drain the bog as was previously planned. They thought, well, let's just drain it. Drain the swamp, Chris. We got to drain the swamp. Well, we know that's not easy. So instead, 70,000 cubic feet of dirt was dropped into the bog to create a raised bed. In one area, so-called the Blackpool Hole, a contractor spent over three months dumping soil into the bog without ever finding the bottom. So they moved around the Blackpool hole, obviously. In addition to dirt, the line was supported by empty tar barrels, which was sealed with clay and laid end-to-end across the drainage ditches on either side of the raised railway. The railway over Chatmoss was finally completed by the end of 1829. 
Now, in late 1829, with construction of the railway nearing completion, the L&MR Company held what they called the Rain Hill Trials, Chris. The event was held on a short level stretch of the completed line near Rain Hill. The purpose was twofold. First, the company wanted to test how the track actually withstood locomotives running over it. And secondly, the company still needed to determine- Here, here, what? <laughs> Go ahead and try this. Yeah, let's, I mean, we've built all this track. We still don't know really how it's gonna handle all this weight. Okay, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> no, but secondly, and kind of more importantly to our story, the company still needed to determine which type of locomotive would be used. And Obviously, to- the only standard is the width of the track. Everything else is fair game, right? Yes. I mean, you've got the width of the track. Yes. That's- we know that. There is a problem, as we'll come to later. So they ran this whole rail line with actually two parallel sets of tracks. So, so there's not- You could go basically one train on one track and another track, or another train on the other, okay. right? So it's two-way, basically. Yep. Um, the question, though, which wasn't standard, is how far apart to put these. In the width of the trains themselves. Correct. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, the Rainhill trials, though, so they still need to determine which type of locomotive would be used, and the winner would basically get the contract to develop these trains. To that end, the Rainhill trials was turned into a contest and was widely publicized. The readers of the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette are aware that a few months ago, a premium of 500 pounds was offered by the directors of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway Company for the locomotive carriage of the best construction and combining in the highest degree the advantages of velocity and draft. On Tuesday last, the experiments to ascertain the merits of different carriages which have been entered for the prize were commenced, and they have since continued daily in order to ascertain satisfactorily their different merits. The spot chosen for the experiment was a portion of the railroad near Rain Hill, about 10 miles from Liverpool, which is on a perfect level and is therefore admirably adapted for the purpose. The number of locomotives entered in the competition numbered five. The following is a description of the carriages. Number one, Monsieur's Baithwaite and Ericsson of London, the novelty by name. It is copper and blue, weighing two tons, 1,500 weight. Number two, Mr. Ackworth of Darrington, named the Sands Parale. It is green and yellow with black, weighing four tons, 800 weight and two quarter. Number three, Mr. Stevenson of Newcastle Upton Tyne, named the Rocket, is yellow and black with a white chimney, weighing four tons, 300 weight. The fourth is Mr. Brandreth of Liverpool, named the Cycloped, weighing three tons, worked by two horses. And number five, Mr. Barstow Edinburgh, named the Pensiverance. Red wheels, weighing two tons and 1,700 weight. Of the four first were exhibited during the day, Mr. Bartswald did not make its appearance, as it was unfortunately thrown off the wagon on which it was conveyed to the scene of action and experienced some injury in the fall. The following account of the running of the first day were taken from the Courier of Wednesday. The locomotive carriages attracted, of course, the attention of every individual on the ground. They ran up and down the road during the fortnoon, more for amusement than experiment, surprising and even startling the unscientific beholders by amazing velocity for which they moved along the rails. Mr. Robert Stevenson's carriage attracted the most attention during the early part of the afternoon. It ran without any weight being attached to it at the rate of 24 miles in the hour, shooting past the spectators with amazing velocity, emitting very little smoke, but dropping red-hot cinders as it proceeded. 
Cars containing stones were then attached to it, weighing together with its own weight upwards of 17 tons, preparatory for the trial of its speed being made. The precise distance between the points of starting, at or near the weighing shed, to the point of returning was 11 miles. But in the adjudicating of distances, we are given to understand the judge allowed a furlong at each end for the requirement of abatement of speed. The observations we record apply, however, to the whole distance. With a load of 12.5 tons gross, the rocket traveled the above space of 3.5 miles four times forward and backward, equal to 14 miles in the space of 75 minutes, exclusive of stoppages. But including stoppages, the average rate was 10 and one quarter miles per hour. But in the fifth course of the rate of speed, with a load assigned by the passengers until equal to 13 tons, was full 15 miles an hour. And so I find it interesting, Chris, that despite his falling out with the LNMR, George Stevenson was still included in the locomotive contest. He was, after all, kind of the foremost designer of locomotive design at the time. And Stevenson's new engine design was called the Rocket, which he ended up actually constructing with his son. One account of the beast we have is from the famous contemporary actress and socialite Fanny Kemble from 1830. Hello. This is Fanny Kemble, your esteemed actress, author, and anti-slavery activist. I accompanied George Stevenson on a test prior to the L&M Railway's opening. We were introduced to the little engine, which was to drag us along the rails. She, for there all these curious little fire horses, all mares, consisted of a boiler, a stove, a platform, a bench, and behind the bench, a barrel containing enough water to prevent her from being thirsty for 15 miles, the whole machine not bigger than a common fire engine. She goes upon two wheels, which are her feet, and are moved by bright steel legs called pistons. These are propelled by steam, and in proportion, as more steam is applied to her upper extremities, the hip joints, I suppose, <laughs> of these little pistons, the faster they move the wheels. And when it is desirable to diminish the speed, the steam, which unless suffered to escape, would burst the boiler, evaporates through a safety valve into the air, the rains bit and bridle of this wonderful beast is a small handle which applies or withdraws the steam from its legs or pistons so that a child might manage it. The coals, which are its oats, were under the bench, and there was a small glass tube affixed to the boiler with water in it, which indicates by its fullness or emptiness when the creature wants water, which is immediately conveyed to it from its reservoirs. This snorting little animal, which I'd felt rather inclined to pat, was then harnessed to our carriage, and Mr. Stevenson, having taken me on the bench of the engine with him. We started at about 10 miles an hour. George Stevenson's way of explaining himself is particular, but very striking, and I understood without difficulty all that he said to me. The engine, having received its supply of water, the carriage was placed behind it, for it cannot turn, and was set off on the utmost speed, 35 miles an hour, swifter than a bird flies, for they tried this experiment with a snipe. You cannot conceive what the sensation of cutting the air was. The motion is as smooth as possible, too. I could either have read or written. As it was, I stood up and, with my bonnet off, drank the air before me, the wind which was strong, or perhaps the force of our own thrusting against it, absolutely weighed my eyelids down. When I closed my eyes, the sensation of flying was quite delightful and strange beyond description. Yet strange as it was, I had a perfect sense of security and not the slightest fear. Now for a word or two about the master of all these marvels, who I am most horribly in love. He is a man from 50 to 55 years of age. His face is fine, though careworn. 
and bears an expression of deep thoughtfulness. His mode of explaining his ideas is particular and very original, striking and forceful. And although his accent indicates strongly his North Country birth, his language is not of the slightest touch of vulgarity or coarseness. He has certainly turned my head. Four years have sufficed to bring this great undertaking to an end. The railroad will be opened upon the 15th of next month. The Duke of Wellington is coming down to be present on the occasion. And, I suppose, what with all the thousands of spectators and the novelty of the spectacle, there will never have been a scene of more striking interest. So I like how hot and bothered Fanny <laughs> yeah. seemed to be for George. You know, when I meet somebody, the first thing I want to do is take off my bonnet. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that was like a, I mean. Ooh, that's a big deal, right? That a big deal? Letting your hair flow down with your bonnet in the was wind. That, was that cutting just like the sending wind. nudes today? Is that just like that's the version of, if someone saw, if your mom saw you taking your bonnet off in For front of a, a man, boy? Oh my goodness. Yeah, she'd take away your phone. <laughs> uh, yeah, certainly. <laughs> certainly so. So although often described described as a race and shown as such in illustrations, this whole Rainhill trials were actually just a series of independent trials. They're not racing trains head to head, which would be a whole lot cooler if you ask me. So each engine ran on a different day. Now, as it just so happens, your resident correspondent, Buster Conrad's great, great grandfather, Bartholomew Conrad, was actually there and took this account. Day, Mr. Stevenson's engine, the rocket, weighing four tons, 300 weight, performed the prescribed work. The following is a correct account of the performance. The engine, with its complement of water, weighed four tons, 500 weight, and the load attached to it was about 13 tons. The journey was one and a half miles each way, with an additional length of 220 yards at each end to stop the engine in, making the journey three and a half miles. The first experiment was for 35 miles, exactly 10 journeys, and including all stoppages, was performed in 3 hours and 10 minutes, being upwards of 11 miles an hour. After this, a fresh supply of water was taken in, which occupied 16 minutes. When the engine was again started to run 35 miles in 2 hours and 52 minutes, upwards of 12 miles an hour, including all stoppages. The speed of the engine with its load when in full motion was from 14 to 17 miles an hour. Had the whole distance been in one continued direction, there is no doubt that the result would have been 15 miles an hour. The of coke was very moderate, being about half a ton in the whole 70 miles. At several parts of the journey, the engine moved at 18 miles an hour. Saturday, in the expectation of witnessing Mr. Braithwaite and Erickson's engine, the novelty, perform its appointed task, the attendance of company on the ground was more numerous today than it had been on several preceding days. With three times its own weight having been attached to the engine, the machine commenced its task and performed at the rate of 16 miles in the hour. Mr. Stevenson's engine, the rocket, also exhibited today. Its tender was completely detached from it, and the engine shot along the road at almost the incredible rate of 32 miles in the hour. So astonishing was the celerity with the engine, without its apparatus, dotted past the spectators, that it could be compared to nothing but the rapidity at which the swallow dots through the air. Their astonishment was complete. Everyone explaining involuntarily, the power of steam is unlimited. The experiments will be continued during the present week. So there you have the first-hand account of the Rainhill Trials. And of the five entrants, George Stevenson's rocket was the only entrant to complete the entire trial without suffering a serious failure. Eight locomotives were then contracted for the opening of the Liverpool-Manchester line, all of which were built by Stevenson's Newcastle Works. And he only got 500 pounds. Plus the entire contract. 
Which well, I, I was like, why did they promote this as like, who you get 500 pounds when I'm sure the contract to build these locomotives was it's much worth, more. Worth thousands and dollars. Probably. Yeah. Uh, the opening day of the railroad was a major public event, Chris. Arthur Wesley, Duke of Wellington, the Prime Minister, all rode on one of the eight inaugural trains, as did many other dignitaries and noble figures of the day. Probably accompanied by Fanny right on their bench with no Oh, bonnet. I'm sure Fanny's there, bonnet in hand, hello, not on her hello, head. Hello, Duke. <laughs> Huge crowds lined the track at Liverpool to watch the trains depart for Manchester, which was 30 miles away. The Duke of Wellington's special train ran on one track, and the other seven trains ran on the adjacent track, which was parallel to them, both uh, sometimes ahead and sometimes behind the Duke's train. At around 13 miles out of Liverpool, the first of many problems occurred. One of the trains derailed and the following train then collided with it since they're running single file and you can't really swerve off of a train track, yep. Chris. With no reported injuries or damage, somehow the derailed locomotive was lifted back onto the track and the journey continued. Then at Parkside Railway Station, near the midpoint of the line, the locomotives made a scheduled stop to take on water. All right. They're thirsty. Yes, they are indeed, as Fanny told us. Although the railway staff advised passengers to remain on the train while this took place, around 50 of the dignitaries on board alighted when the Duke of Wellington's special train stopped. One of those who got off was William Huskinson. And before I go further, I just want to think like, okay, today you think a train coming to a stop to take on water and do like service, you'd be like, this is a dangerous thing. We're not going to get off. These people had no idea that there was danger yeah, necessarily. They're just, like, they're just like out wandering around. Right. They're just wandering around while this is going on. And this William Huskinson, he's a former cabinet minister and member of the parliament for Liverpool. Now, Huskinson had been a highly influential figure in the creation of the British um, Empire and an architect of the doctrine of free trade. I like that. That sounds that good. That sounds great. But he had a falling out with Wellington in 1828 over the issue of parliamentary reform and had actually resigned from his cabinet. So he's like, there's a lot of shifty people in parliament here, Duke. Let's get rid of them. And Duke's like, no, sorry, guy. Hoping to be reconciled with Wellington, he approached the Duke's railway carriage and shook his head. Like reaching up into the window. Yeah, like, oh. so Duke, how are you? Let us mend things. Distracted by the Duke, he did not notice an approaching locomotive on the adjacent track. Oh, no. Unrealizing it was approaching, he panicked and tried to clamber into the Duke's carriage. What happened next was something straight out of those terrible Final Destination movies from like the early 2000s. Oh no. You see, the two sets of tracks, as I alluded to before, were spaced exactly as far apart from each other as they were wide. This made it so that a train could actually straddle the inner set of tracks if need be. If, for instance, a repair needed to be done in one track, right? right? So you can actually makes, I mean, have a train sense. riding on the innermost rail of one set and the innermost rail of the other set, okay? Sounds like a great idea. This had the effect, however, of making the two tracks very, very close together. When the former cabinet minister realized the train was approaching, he jumped up for the door of the stationary train car. However, as he did so, he accidentally unlatched the door and it swung open with him hanging onto it into the speeding train's path. I can just picture this happening in his perspective from slow motion. You're distracted. You see the train. Oh, crap. Jump up to try to get out of the way. And just slowly the door creaks out uh, you as get... you're hanging off it into the speeding train's path. 
The man was not killed instantly, instead suffering oh. major leg injuries and died later that night, which... The agony. I think if you're going to get hit by a train, you kind of just want it to be done and over quick. And well, not, these things are only going 15 miles an hour, so... I mean. Just lying in agony for hours. So the Duke of Wellington understandably felt that the remainder of the day's events should be canceled following the accident. We just had a dignitary die in front of him. However, a large crowd had gathered at Manchester and expected to see the train manned all those dignitaries. And with their delay, the crowd was becoming unruly. Wellington was persuaded to continue to Manchester just simply to keep the peace, if nothing else. Look, I'm sorry, there was a huge tragedy, but we got it. Let's just keep the peace down here. But by the time the trains reached the outskirts of Manchester, it was too late. The crowd had become hostile and was spilling out onto the tracks. Local authorities were unable to clear the tracks, and the trains were obliged to basically drive at low speed into the crowd, using their own momentum to push people out of the way. Good grief. How stupid are people? My gosh. And this is before the days of cow catchers, right? Right. So I just, I, there had to have been injuries with this. Yeah, I would imagine. Eventually, they arrived at the station to be met by hostels throwing bottles and rotten vegetables at the train. Why? I don't know if they're just so poor and like kind of like they wanted to be part of the celebration, but then they're getting more drunk as well, they're I, waiting and yeah, grumpy. We, we've and, seen what happens with mob mentality. So, so I do want to take a sidebar here. Why does every angry mob seem to have rotten vegetables with them? Where are these coming from? Do people just carry old tomatoes with them in, in case they need them? Like Probably because they just dig them out of the garbage which is sitting on the street. True. I, I like to think of it as like, yeah, Chris, I'm, I'm going out tonight, and I mean, I'm not planning to get in any trouble, but I always carry a bushel of rotten food with me, you know, just in just case any case. angry mob comes just to form. Case. I really think they probably just grabbed it out of the garbage that's laying everywhere. I'm, you're right, because yeah. it's not like you had very nice no. uh, trash situations. No. No. So Wellington obviously refused to get off the train with an angry mob surrounding him and ordered the trains to return to Liverpool. However, mechanical failures and an inability for the trains to turn around meant that most of the trains were unable to leave the station. The Duke of Wellington's train did successfully leave. However, only three of the remaining seven locomotives were usable after the mob. They just tore everything apart. These three locomotives slowly hauled a single long train of 24 carriages back to Liverpool. Just, ima- just imagine that. Oh because as you George, talked about too. George, George, what are we going to do? <laughs> We've got seven of these things. Only three of them are running. This dude just got creamed. He's creamed. I'm covered in fucking tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do? I don't know. Line them up. These things run in reverse, right? I don't know. I yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of. So 24 carriages, they lined them up and they arrived six and a half hours later after having been pelted with objects thrown from bridges by the drunken crowds lining the track on the way back. Well, it's not like these guys had anything better to do. They didn't have Netflix sitting back at their no, little, they didn't. At their and little they, shitty mean, apartment I like next to, think, to all the dead bodies coming sure. halfway out of the ground. I like I like to think this kind of ties into your whole sentiment about like people not liking change. So, yes, if there's a big event and some cool thing, you're going to go see it because you're right. interested. But it's it, the only festivity. But imagine what that represents. That represents wealth. I mean, that is, yes. it is the yes. absolute epitome of class warfare. It is the haves and the have-nots, and the haves are celebrating and their new thing that they tomatoes. have. It's the tomatoes versus the guys with the trains. So that is what happened. Um, Ironically, all of that chaos helped the railroad immensely. 
You see, the debauchery was covered in papers all around Europe, and everyone knew of this new railroad just because of the chaos that had happened. Right. There is, after all, no news like bad news, Chris. And basically, from this time on, railroad building spread rapidly throughout Britain, Europe, and North America. And George Stevenson continued as the chief guide on the revolutionary transportation medium, solving problems of railroad construction, bridge design, and locomotive and rolling stock manufacture. Apparently he did get better at the civil part of this, <laughs> seeing as how he's doing a lot of bridge building as well. Right. But George Stevenson is the train guy for the foreseeable future. In fact, the first engines used in the United States were purchased from the Stevenson Works in England. Imagine getting the, the ship that those went on. I cannot yeah. imagine. But I think we have to save that for next week. And my plan for episode two of the beginning of the railway is to dig more into the technology of the steam engine itself, the locomotive, how they worked, what the revolutions were, and how they changed the landscape of early America. All right, guys, that's all we have time for today. I want to remind everybody to head over to patreon.com slash overcrest, support the show, leave us a five-star review if you could, and if it's your first time listening to the podcast, hit that subscribe button. We would really appreciate it. We will see you guys on Friday. Take care. When John Henry was a little baby, no bigger than the palm of your hand, his mommy looked down at little Johnny and said, my Johnny gonna be a steel driving man. Yes, Johnny gonna be a steel driving man. John Henry was a steel driving man, drove steel all over the land. Before I let the steam hammer get me down, I'm gonna die with my hammer in my hand. Die with my hammer in my hand. John Henry went to the tunnel to drive steam hammer by his side. He beat the steam hammer to the top of the hill. He laid down his hammer and he cried, Lord, laid down his hammer and he cried. John Henry had a loving little wife. Her name was Polly Ann. Johnny got sick and he had to go to bed. Polly drove steel like a man. Yes, Polly drove steel like a man. They buried John Henry in the graveyard. They laid him down in the sand. Every time a freight train come puffing by, they'd say, yonder lies a steel driving man. Yonder lies a steel driving my